means we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Great show, bro. This is sunny side of sports. Right here on the Voice of America. Voice of America. Sporty greetings to all our Voice of America listeners. This is VOA's Sonny Young in Washington. Welcome to the September 9th edition of the sunny side of sports. As the world mourns the death of Britain's Queen Elizabeth II at the age of 96, what was her legacy in terms of sports? Perhaps her favorite sports were equestrian and horse racing. Horses were one of the British monarch's true passions. She received her first riding lesson at age three, was given her first pony when she turned four, and the queen also owned horses that won high-stakes races. Let's listen in now to this British newsreel as the queen's horse, Karatsa, wins the 1957 Oak Stakes race. The disappointment of Derby Day was forgotten as the queen discussed her prospects for the Oaks with her jockeys, W.H. Carr and Lester Piggott. And the crowd, thronging Epsom Downs, looked on and hoped for a royal champion to succeed where such as Oriole, Landor and Dutel had failed. The field of 11 got off to a good start, with the two royal hopes, Albury Harbour and Carrozza, not among the early leaders. They were bred for stamina. Round the wide bend to Tattenham Corner, it's Tatinger, number five, the northern hope, showing the way from Winged Sprite of Ireland with number two, Mulberry Harbour, ready to move. Round Tattenham Corner, Tatinger still striding ahead from Winged Sprite, but then a gasp of dismay, Mulberry Harbour is dropping back, but Carrozza, number one, and Lester Piggott are waiting their chance. Into the straight and the chairs swell, for a royal champion has appeared as we hand over to Raymond Lendenny. And it's still Karatza. It's Karatza from Silken Dider. Rose Royale's dropping back a bit. And Karatza it is. Challenged out by Silken Dider. And Karatza in the last 150 yards. Now heads to the Queen. And they clear. And Piggy's working hard on there. Silken Dider's coming right up. And suppose it can only be a fraction if it's Karatza. Hats off the Queen. Victory by a short head. But for a moment, Karatza nearly spoils the racing picture of the year. So the Queen leads in her first classic winner, a magnificent Derby Oaks triumph for jockey Lester Piggott and the man behind the scenes, trainer Noel Merlis. A great result as the royal owner, who has so often greeted defeat with a smile, enjoys a big race triumph. Hats off to the Queen, our longtime sunny side of sports reporter in London. The energetic Andy Edwards has also been looking back on the part horse racing played in the life of Queen Elizabeth II. Hello, Andy. Hello, Sonny. The figures themselves are impressive enough in a career where, as a racehorse owner, her stables won almost 1,000 races. But what was also clear throughout her life, and now at her passing, is her active involvement. It stemmed from childhood. The Royal House of Windsor, from Queen Victoria in the late 19th century onwards, always had members keen on the outdoor life, hunting, shooting and fishing. The young Elizabeth was given a pony at the age of three, and that connection continued right to the end of her life. 
Two days before her death, one of the Queen's horses, a two-year-old filly by the name of Love Affairs, won at the Goodwood Racecourse in Sussex in southern England. Such a fitting name for that filly, Andy. Love Affairs. The Queen certainly had a love affair with horse racing. Andy, what impact did the Queen's involvement as an owner have on the sport of horse racing? Her presence always ensured a high profile for the sport. By that I mean not just having the resources to fund stables, trainers, jockeys and some of the best head trainers, but also her physical presence at racing. As an owner, she won her first race in 1949, four years before she became queen. In looking back over her career in horse racing, I found pictures of her leading in, that is, taking the winning horse by the bridle into the winner's enclosure. I was looking at one a few minutes ago of a photograph taken in 1957, where the young queen is leading in her horse, Carrozza, ridden by one of the greats, Lester Piggott, after winning the prestigious Oaks at Epsom. Race meetings in Britain, such as Derby Day at Epsom, always had a royal presence. Yes, Andy, I also had to go check out that photo of the Queen leading in her winning horse, Carrazza, in 1957. Great photo. And uh, once again, at the top of the show, we heard that British newsreel of Carrazza winning in 1957. Andy, did uh, Queen Elizabeth win many important races as an owner? Well, while any owner who stays in the sport for many years is likely to have their losing streaks, the Queen's colours, or silks, worn by her jockeys, triumphed in all but one of the five British classics. Only the Derby eluded her. Twenty years ago, her horses and jockeys appeared to have lost their winning touch, but the stables recovered to such an extent that last year, the 70th and jubilee year of her reign, the Queen entered 41 horses in competition and achieved 36 wins, the most successful run of her career as an owner. Not only did she own horses, she also sold them as products of the royal stud. This and a mutual interest in racing led to close ties with Sheikh Mohammed and others of the ruling family in Dubai. Andy, did other members of the royal family follow the Queen and her interest in horses and racing? Not to such an extent, but it shouldn't be forgotten that her daughter, Princess Anne, rode in the 1976 Olympics in Montreal as a member of the British eventing team. So far, there's no indication that any member of the British royal family takes such an active interest in horse racing as Queen Elizabeth did. It's too early to say what will be the future of the Queen's horses and stables. King Charles III, as he will become, has well-known interests in the environment and architecture, but has not been a regular presence in the horse racing world. Thanks, Andy. That's the energetic Andy Edwards speaking with us from London. Many major British sports events have been suspended or cancelled over the next few days following the death of Queen Elizabeth. The top-tier English Premier League has cancelled all its football matches this weekend. In a statement, Premier League Chief Executive Richard Masters said, and I quote, we and our clubs would like to pay tribute to Her Majesty's long and unwavering service to our country. As our longest-serving monarch, she has been an inspiration 
and leaves behind an incredible legacy following a life of dedication. This is a tremendously sad time, not just for the nation, but also for the millions of people around the world who admired her. And we join together with all those in mourning her passing. End quote. Queen Elizabeth had a lifelong connection with sports. One of her biggest football moments was at Wembley Stadium in London in 1966 when she presented medals to the World Cup winning England national men's football team. And we'll have more next week on the sunny side of sports on the sports legacy of Queen Elizabeth. Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and the artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Thanks, Heather. I'm VOA's Sonny Young in Washington. And you're listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. Samson O'Malley joins us once again with another extra spicy package of African sports highlights. And Samson tells me his opening serve involves a Tunisian tennis player aiming for Grand Slam glory in New York. Sporty Friday greetings, Samson! Sporty Friday greetings to you too, Sunny. We begin the wrap of this weekend's African sports highlight with the U.S. Open. Tunisia Ant Jabour will face world number one Iga Swatek for the U.S. Open women's singles title after both won their semifinals on Thursday. Tunisia's Ant Jabour became the first African female tennis player to reach the finals of the U.S. Open. Jabois, who also claimed a notable first in July as the first woman from Africa to reach the final at Wimbledon, reached her back-to-back Grand Slam finals by winning 6-1, 6-3 against France, Caroline Garcia. Yeah, I mean, great game for me, to be honest. I uh, I just, uh, it was the plan to um, to just uh, follow my coach for the first time 100%, but it was good. He's, he's satisfied. He didn't have nothing to say after the match. Uh, just, yeah, I know she was very confident, so I had to really impose my game from the beginning, and uh, it was working very well until the end of the match. Jabour, in her post-match conference, said the finals may be a difficult match, but she's prepared to give her best. I'm happy the fact that I backed up the, the results in, in Wimbledon, and uh, people are not really surprised I'm in the finals, but... You know, just uh, going and going and, and just doing my thing. And um, now maybe I know what to do in the finals. Uh, I know it's going to be very difficult, but I'm, 
I'm, I'm going to have to do my best now. In athletics, world and Olympic 1,500 meters champion Fifth Kipyagan clocked four minutes, 44 seconds to win the women's 1,500 meters and rack up her third Diamond League title on the final day of this year's league on Thursday. Despite running slower this time, Kenyan Kipyagan was still happy to finish off her season with a win. It's something special. It's really something um, I was looking forward to finish my season in a nice way. And this is what I did. I just controlled the race and I thought, let me just still cool down. And uh, yeah, after that, been a really, really nice season for me. Uh, now I go back and enjoy my time with my daughter and uh, looking forward for next year again. And uh, yeah, I hope I will do better that this year. Having cemented her status as the queen of the three and a quarter lap race, Kip Jürgen will be keen on enhancing this reputation when she returns to Budapest next year to defend the world title she snatched from Dutch woman Sifan Hassan in Oregon in July. Staying with the Diamond League, Nigeria's Tobia Musong clinched the women's 100 meters hurdles. On Thursday, she finished 12.29 seconds to defend her Diamond League title. The Nigerian had won the Diamond League trophy last year in 12.42 seconds. She also set an African record. In July, she became the first Nigerian to win a World Athletics Championship gold. Weeks later, at the Commonwealth Games, Amusong grabbed another record-breaking gold medal for Team Nigeria. Sporty greetings. This is Toby Amusong, 100 meter hurdles, African champion, African Games record holder, national champion, Commonwealth Games champion, Olympic finalist, Diamond League trophy winner. You're listening to the sunny side of sport on the Voice of America. And now to cycling. Kenyan cyclist Suleiman Sule Kangagi, who died in Vermont, United States, has been buried in Etienne, El Gayo, Marraquet County in Kenya. The 33-year-old cyclist died during the Overland Gravel Race, crashing while on high speed. As the founder of Kenyan Riders, Kangagi was the captain of the Kenyan team at the 2015 All-African Games in Congo, Brazzaville. Many cyclists who turned out to pay their last respect to Kangagi described the late cyclist as a trailblazer. He's a very determined cyclist. He organized races for us. He cycled with us. He mentored some of us, most of us. That's why we are here today to remember him and give him that last salute as cyclists. What I want to say about Sulek Kangani, when we came in, in 2018, when he came from Uganda, we were in Eton. He welcomed us. He gave us a rental house, gave us food. We trained together, we jogged together. Every day we moved him together. We are drawn from all walks of life, all cyclists from all over here. And we want to say Sule has really impacted more and more of our friends, young generations. And he's drawn from our home of champion Elrit, and we are proud about that. Sule! Sule! And out to South Africa, where 40 countries are already in Cape Town, South Africa, for the 2022 edition of the Rugby World Cup Sevens. New Zealand head to South Africa as defending champions in both the men's and women's tournament after the Black Fence Sevens and All Black Sevens made history in San Francisco four years ago. Uganda, Zimbabwe, Kenya and host South Africa will represent Africa in the men's category. The Uganda National Sevens Rugby team will open their campaign against Samoa at the prelim. Preliminary round. Head coach of Uganda Rugby Cranes, Tolubet Onyango, and Captain Michael Wokerich shared their thoughts on their team's expectation. Samoa is a very physical team uh, and they've got uh, quite some bit of pace. Uh, a couple of young guys as well. 
Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a serious matchup for us. We're going to give it our level best, and uh, I, I think if we play according to our structures, we should be uh, we should be okay. We have prepared ourselves in the best way possible. Uh, we've had uh, two days of training, yeah. so I think we are very ready, and everyone on this team is very hopeful and. I think everyone is in a winning spirit for tomorrow's first game. The South African women's sevens team, Africa's only representative in the women's category, will begin their first World Cup game on home soil against France on Friday. Head coach Paul Dalbot says the South Africans have prepared well enough over the last couple of months for the World Cup. You know, there were sevens ladies and fifteens ladies. They've kind of played together all year. They've been at training camps together all year, and they all just get on so well. Uh, and, and I think as well, going into a one-off tournament, the focus is a bit different, so it's a little bit easier to come together because there's that single-mindedness and that one goal. Um, and that they've just run, done very, very well in uh, that regard. In football news, the CAF Super Cup Final 2022 will be played on Saturday at the Prince Morley Abdella Stadium by two Moroccan clubs, Wadad Athletic Club, winners of the CAF Champions League, and RS Bakane, CAF Confederations Cup champions. This is Wadad's fourth final. They go level with Raja Casablanca for the most Super Cup Final appearances for a Moroccan team. Staying with CAF organized competitions, the draw for the second edition of the CAF Women's Champions League scheduled to take place from the 30th of October to the 13th of November 2022 in Morocco took place on Friday at the prestigious Mohamed VI Technical Center in Rabat. In Group A, the host club Asfra FC Morocco, who won the Women's Champions League bronze medal in Egypt last year, will face Tanzania's Simba Queens, Zambia's Green Buffaloes, and Liberia's Determined Girls. In Group B, defending champions Mamelodi Sundowns, ladies of South Africa, will face Nigeria's Bayelsa Queens, Egypt's Wadi Degla, and the Unifac representative. The draw was conducted by Samson Adamu, CAF Director of Competitions. From my side, I can only wish all the eight teams all the best of luck. Come 13th of October until 13th of November this year, it will be the last competition that CAF will be playing this year. And it is going to be a special competition how we're going to end our year in CAF with the CAF Women's Champions League. It promised to be an exciting competition. And the two teams will be in uh, Rabat and in El Jadida. Staying with CAF News, the 2022-2023 CAF Champions League season kicks off this weekend with the first leg fixtures of the first preliminary round taking place across the continent. A total of 24 matches will be played this weekend while the match between Elect Sport of Chad versus Zamalek of Egypt will be played on the 18th of September at the Amodo Haijo Stadium in Yaoundé. Al-Hakli of Egypt, Asporans of Tunisia, Mamelodi Sundowns of South Africa, Raja Club Athletic of Morocco, TP Mezimbi of DR Congo, Wider Athletic Club of Morocco have all received a bye to play in the second preliminary round. Thanks, Samson. That's Samson Omale with another extra spicy package of African sports news. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's newsmaker interview program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com slash PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. 
Just send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash VOA or on Twitter at VOA. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Thanks, Carol. You can also connect with the sunny side of sports on Facebook and Twitter. My Facebook address is facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny. And my Twitter handle is at VOA Sunny Sports. In more African men's football news, World Cup bound Ghana is preparing for Qatar with former Tottenham Hotspur player and coach Chris Hewton in the key role of technical advisor. We'll hear from the 63-year-old Hewton now in this report by Yawafusu Larbi in Accra. Sporty greetings, Yao! Sporty greetings, Sunny. After a poor showing at the Africa Cup of Nations in January, fans of the Black Stars called for the sacking of the then-coach Milovan Rajevac. The FA heeded this call. Rajevac was sacked after the Cup of Nations debacle and a replacement was what everyone's mind was on. Fans looked on with bated breath to see who the FA would appoint. In a bid to give the job to a local coach, former black star Otoado was appointed. Fellow coaches Masoud Didi Dramani and George Watting joined in as assistant coaches, but it was a technical advisor role that many were surprised at who took it. Former Tottenham Hotspur coach Chris Hilton was appointed for that role and it got fans really excited. The excitement yielded results as the Black Stars went into the crucial World Cup qualifying phase with Nigeria and came up top. Hilton is half Ghanaian. He was born to a Ghanaian father and an Irish mother and says working for Ghana now is huge for him. Firstly, it's a pleasure. Um, and I, I'm aware of um, some uh, talks before, you know, and some speculation before, uh, and I think that's that's normal because my father is from uh, from Accra, so I think that's normal. Uh, I think as regards management, my management has always been, you know, day to day club management, you know, as a manager and a, and a, and a head coach. Um, so at this stage, this stage of my life and career to be involved, albeit in a different role with the, the Black Stars, is uh, something that's a, a huge honour for me. I've uh, always had that connection. Um, you know, my, my background is very different. You know, I, my father, of course, from uh, Accra, my mother is Irish. Uh, I played for Ireland for uh, 10 years and in some, some uh, big games. And, of course, I was born and brought up in, in London, England. Um, but I've always been very conscious of my background. Um, so whenever Ghana played, and particularly whenever Ghana played in the, the, the big games, then uh, I was always there in my mind, always there supporting and, and uh, absolutely hoping that the, the team would do well. Because I knew that any way that the team could do well, it would be good for the development of the, the country and, of course, football in the country. I haven't seen so much more than what I already knew. You know, I, I, I know the, the, the history of uh, Ghanaian football, you know, international, more international football, I have to be honest, than, uh, than club local football. So I know the history, I know about the World Cups and, and of course it's, it's how you deem the World Cups and, and always, 
always, maybe it will change, but always I think when an African team gets to the World Cup, you know, that is success getting there. So I've always been very, very conscious of, uh, of uh, what there is here and the development. Um, but the, the satisfying thing for me since my involvement is uh, a lot of the young talent that's there, a lot of the um, young Ghanaians that are either first generation or second generation Ghanaians, even playing abroad, that are now being brought to my attention. So, um, you know, that, that is, I think, an exciting prospect, certainly going into the future. One thing Hutton has done very well is to strengthen the team by scouting around the world and speaking to Ghanaians in the diaspora to choose playing for Ghana. Already, six players have decided to play for the Black Stars, and amongst them is Athletic Bilbao's Inyaki Williams and Brighton's Tariq Lamte, two players who will improve the Black Stars team in many ways. This is a subject um, that... that that I think will always, and you said it's, it's been a, a divisive um, the subject, um, but I think it's, it's a subject that so many other countries have had to deal with. And, and even, you know, I spoke about representing the, the Republic of Ireland, and very similar. You know, they, they have, you know, a, a very good uh, domestic league, um, but of course most of the players play abroad. And, of course, a lot of those players are, are second-generation uh, Irish. So I think it's, it is um, a structure that a lot of international organisations have, have, have had to cope with. And there's one about getting the balance, because one thing that I have been made aware of is that, that um, the domestic and local leagues here is a very good league, and it's very competitive, and I've seen that in my time uh, being involved. Uh, and we have to make sure that for those that are doing well, that they are very much in our thoughts. So it is about getting that balance. Ultimately, ultimately for the senior national team, it's about getting the best squad possible to, to win football matches. The first thing is, is about a willingness to want to be involved and, uh, and want to play. And you know, one thing I can tell you is that in my short period of time here, the, um, the, the new recruits as such uh, that, that we have have showed great enthusiasm so far mm. and, and of course you know, there hasn't been a, a game yet for them to be, to be involved in um, but in the talks that, um, that initially the, the association had with them they showed great enthusiasm so uh, I am uh, absolutely positive that for, for any new players, new recruits that come into the squad, um, they will have no difficulty um, getting the, the right balances. My experiences of the squad so far is it's, it's a very, very good environment to come into, a very competitive environment, um, uh, uh, an environment also that, um, that wants to represent the country and wants to do well for the country and know what it means. And um, so I, I, I would anticipate no problems in them uh, mixing in with the group and, and getting the feel of what's important. As the World Cup draws closer, teams have started limbering up to the tournament. For this reason, the Ghana Football Association has put together two friendly matches against Brazil and Nicaragua. Hutton says these games will be used to assess players and check their readiness for the tournament. Well, I think what, what has happened with the two friendly games, of course, they... Um, we thought they were going to be um, two AFCON games. Mm -hmm. 
So I think very quickly the the association uh, have to had to organise two two friendly games, and and um, and we congratulate them on that. I think they're two very good friendlies. There's a lot of organisation that's gone behind the friendlies. Um, but uh, Otto's job, Otto's job will be to um, formulate um, what he wants to get from these two games. So you know the balance, the balances will be result because of course results matter and it's it's good certainly to go into a, a World Cup campaign um, on the back of of winning games. But it's a result. It's individual performances an opportunity to look at uh, individuals because we are now very close of course to the world cup a way of playing whichever system otto chooses to play that player fitting into that system um, and of course these two games give um, uh, otto myself and the technical staff the time and the experience to look at everybody of course to formulate the squad for for the world cup hilton may be technical advisor but he's heavily involved in the development of football by reaching out to young footballers and helping their careers. That's a win for football in Ghana. For the sunny side of sports, this is Yao Fusilabi. Thanks, Yao. Yao and Ghana's technical advisor, Chris Hewton, mentioned those friendly matches this month against Brazil and Nicaragua. The Brazil friendly is scheduled for September 23rd in France. And the Nicaragua friendly four days later on September 27th in Spain. And that wraps up the September 9th edition of the show. Thank you for tuning in and have a nice weekend. I'm VOA's Sonny Young in Washington, and that's the sunny side of sports. I get it.